This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. On December 15th, 1982, Frank Smith was pondering the day's activities in his hometown of Morton, Mississippi. He worked in the construction industry, and the rain that was pouring down outside meant that he would have the day off. He called a friend, John Dolan, and asked if he wanted to do some treasure hunting with him. The two men had a love of Civil War relics and would regularly take their metal detectors out to hunt for leftover artifacts from the war. They drove an hour west of Vicksburg, where they pulled over at a rest stop and grabbed their gear. As they walked into the woods, they suddenly noticed what looked like a human body. I mean, it's possible it was a mannequin, right? No, it's never a mannequin. They took a closer look and verified that it was in fact a human body before running back to their truck and driving down the highway to a way station where they alerted authorities. When sheriffs arrived on the scene, they found a young man face down on the ground with a pair of handcuffs locked to his right wrist. He had multiple gunshot wounds to the head and no identification. The medical examiner determined the body had been there for at least 24 hours. They had a John Doe on their hands and very little evidence to go on. They would eventually come to find out that this was not the killer's first victim. This is Monsters. Samuel Tony West, who went by Tony, was born on August 11, 1952, and had a pretty rough childhood. Before Tony was born, his father was injured in a train accident and had debilitating neck and back pain for the rest of his life. The family had to survive on his disability checks and the little extra he made from the odd jobs he could do. When Tony was only 10, his father died in a car accident when his car slid off the road and hit a telephone pole. His body was recovered hours later with a broken neck. When Tony was 13 years old, he shot and killed his two-year-old cousin. He was playing with a gun, unaware that it was loaded, and pointed it at the little boy's head. When he pulled the trigger, he learned the hard way that the gun was actually loaded. Since the killing was believed to be accidental, Tony wasn't charged with murder, but was sent to a psychiatric facility until he was 18. After Tony was released from the hospital, he quickly turned to crime, having been arrested for theft and put in jail. In 1979, Tony was married and got into an argument with his brother-in-law, Kenneth Todd, which resulted in Tony pulling a 22 caliber pistol and shooting Kenneth four times, once in the stomach, once in the head, and twice in the back. Kenneth was rushed to the hospital where he miraculously survived the shooting. At 4 o'clock in the morning, Tony walked into the sheriff's department and surrendered, and while he was being booked, the sheriffs realized that he should have already been serving time in the Hamilton County Penal Farm. He had escaped in 1974, five years earlier. 
The worst part about it was that Tony pleaded no contest and was sentenced to three years in prison. Though they put him in a more secure prison, they didn't add any time to his sentence for the escape and he wasn't made to serve out the rest of his original sentence. He literally had a get-out-of-free-jail card. While he was in prison, his wife divorced him. When Tony was out of prison, he moved into an old trailer that his sister owned a few miles away from Tryon, Georgia. It was here that Tony met 17-year-old Avery. Kenneth Avery Brock, who went by Avery, was born in 1965 in Walker County, Georgia. His father was a farmer who died of a cerebral hemorrhage when Avery was only about seven years old. Eventually, Avery's mother remarried and he did not have a good relationship with his stepfather. He was a strict man who doled out harsh punishments on Avery. By the time Avery was 17, he had dropped out of school and was working odd jobs mowing lawns or chopping wood. He was said to be a reliable worker. Not long before he met Tony, he was kicked out of his house and was doing everything he could to survive on the streets, which included occasionally stealing food. When Tony offered to let him move into his trailer, Avery jumped at the chance. The trailer had no electricity or running water, but it was a warm, dry place to sleep and that was more than he had at the time. Despite their 13-year age difference, Tony and Avery bonded over the loss of their fathers at a young age and, of course, drugs. They both enjoyed escaping their miserable existences through drug use, but since both of them were unemployed, the drugs weren't easy to come by. Most of the time they would get high by huffing a mixture of paint thinner and model airplane glue. They would really add anything that contained a powerful solvent into the mixture. It wasn't long, though, before the men discovered a place in the mountains called Corpsewood Manor and its eccentric owner, Dr. Scudder. Charles Scudder was born on October 6, 1926 in Wauwatosa, Wisconsin. After high school, he attended Oberlin College and then went to Loyola University's Stritch School of Medicine. He obtained degrees in zoology, languages, and chemistry, and received a Ph.D. in pharmacology. In his youth, he was a highly intelligent young man interested in almost everything. He studied drama, music, and art, but ultimately he chose to pursue science as a career. Charles had two early heterosexual marriages, the second of which produced four sons, Saul, Gideon, Fenris, and Ahab. After graduation, Charles became the associate director for the Loyola University of Chicago Institute for Mind, Drugs, and Behavior and worked as an associate professor. There, he did government-funded experiments with psychoactive drugs. He was known to be eccentric, at times dyeing his hair purple or red, something extremely unusual at the time, and at one point he had a pet monkey. While in Chicago, Charles met a man named Joseph Odom, who was born on March 27, 1938, in Cook County, Illinois. Joey dropped out of school in the fifth grade and began getting into trouble. After his eventual arrest, he worked as a cook in jail, finally earning him a skill that would better his life. His cooking skills are why Charles ended up hiring him to take care of his family in 1959. Charles had divorced by then and was living in a mansion on Chicago's west side with his four sons. Joey moved in and began cooking and helping look after the boys. Charles and Joey began having a relationship with each other, but it was kept secret due to increased stigma at the time. In the early 1970s, Charles's children were grown and he was becoming increasingly frustrated with changes being made at the university. 
He felt that his research grants were being turned down more and that the school was focusing more on image than anything else. He also felt that the community where he lived was falling due to increased crime. He was reading the magazine Mother Earth News and became more and more interested in living off the grid. Someone who was close to Charles said that he longed for an escape from, quote, taxes, light bills, gas bills, water bills, heating bills, and the helpless feeling that resulted from watching my old neighborhood disintegrate into an urban ghetto. So Charles began looking for a plot of land where he could build an off-grid house. He found the right spot in the mountains just outside of the town of Tryon in northern Georgia. He paid just over $10,000 for the 40-acre property and had a 160-foot deep well dug. Then he and Joey cleared an area where they would build a brick house completely by hand. On his 50th birthday, Charles resigned from Loyola University. He purchased a 1976 Jeep and a small camper that he towed down to the property. After leaving most of his worldly possessions behind, he headed south with Joey and his two English Mastiffs to construct a new residence in the depths of the forest. It took about two years to build the main part of the brick building, and during that time, hikers and hunters would talk about the strange sight in the middle of the woods. Of the items they did bring with them were antiques, books, and Charles's gold harp. Charles was a professional-level harp player. Here he is playing and reciting poetry by William Blake. Stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears. Did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? Tiger, tiger burning bright in the forests of the night. What immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry? While they were constructing the house, the antiques and the harp were just sitting outside in the woods. Locals all began talking about the strange brick castle in the forest. When Charles went out to look at the property the first time, the trail was blocked by a dead horse. The thought of the corpse, surrounded by all the dead trees in the winter, gave Charles the idea to name the house Corpsewood Manor. To complete their country manor, the two added a three-story building they called the Chicken House. The first floor was where they kept chickens. On the second floor, they stored canned goods and they had an extensive pornography collection. The third floor was for entertaining, which they called the Pink Room, and was also known as their Pleasure Chamber. Charles was in no way a devil worshipper, as the Tryon locals would eventually refer to him. Despite his professional life being steeped in hard science, he was a man who believed that there were other planes of existence and knowledge out there somewhere. He experimented with divination and tarot. He became interested in the ideas presented by the Church of Satan. Places like the Church of Satan and the Satanic Temple do not worship Satan. They don't actually believe that Satan is real. For the Church of Satan, the word Satan is derived from the Hebrew root word meaning adversary or archenemy. It represents a philosophy of questioning societal norms and exploring one's natural instincts. For the Satanic Temple, Satan is used as a means of identifying hypocrisy in the use of religious symbols by state and federal organizations. 
Charles's interest in the Church of Satan was due to their doctrines respecting everybody's right to sexual activity with any other consenting adult. The church focuses on freedom to do whatever makes you happy and doesn't hurt anyone else. A freeing idea that Charles wanted to add to his off-grid lifestyle. It's said that Charles also liked to display satanic imagery to get a rise out of people, just like having purple hair in the 1960s. Avery had been up to Corpsewood Manor a couple of times by mid-November of 1982. Charles and Joey made their own wine and regularly shared it with anybody who stopped by. Avery was able to convince Tony to go up to the Mountain Manor with him and drink some free wine. When they arrived, Charles invited them up to the pink room where they chatted and drank some watermelon wine. After they were all pretty inebriated, Charles began performing oral sex on Avery. When he noticed that Tony was watching, he offered him a blowjob, but Tony turned it down. As Avery and Tony drove back home, Avery insisted that he wasn't gay and asked Tony not to tell anyone. The following morning, Avery was even more worked up over the events of the previous night. He was now claiming that Charles got him drunk and took advantage of him. Tony wasn't naive and he believed that it hadn't been the first time, but he shrugged off Avery's rant. Soon, though, Avery's rant turned into the threat of murder. Tony had only been in the pink room, but Avery told him that their house was full of antiques and valuables. Avery was able to convince Tony that Charles and Joey were rich and they must keep their money in the house. Anyone who lived way out in the woods, off the grid, clearly wouldn't trust banks. Also, the fact that they lived alone in the forest meant that no one would miss them. They believed they had found a perfect target. They could kill Charles and Joey, dispose of the bodies, and take over the house for themselves. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Avery and Tony started driving into Corpsewood Manor on December 10th with the intention of carrying out the crime. While they were headed into the mountain, Tony asked where the gun was. Avery said he didn't bring it. He was just going to use his knife. Tony reminded him of the two large mastiffs that shared the home with Charles and Joey. They decided to delay the plan for a few days. They would return with a gun and also bring witnesses for some reason. On December 12th, Avery and Tony headed back to Corpsewood Manor, this time with two other people, Teresa Hudges and Joey Wells, Tony's nephew. Avery had gone to his mother's house that morning and retrieved a 22 caliber rifle that had belonged to his late father. When he left with Tony a little later, Tony had invited Joey and Teresa to hang out with them. When they first arrived at the castle in the woods, all four climbed up to the pink room, looking forward to some free wine. They hung out for a little while, drinking and huffing the paint-thinner airplane glue mixture. While Charles, Tony, Joey Wells, and Teresa were in the pink room, Avery slipped out and retrieved the gun from the car. When he returned, nobody seemed to be concerned that he was holding a rifle, and Charles continued his conversation with Tony. Suddenly, Avery pulled a hunting knife from his boot and grabbed Charles. He told him not to move or he'd cut his throat. 
He used the knife to cut strips of one of the bed sheets and used the cloth to tie Charles up. Teresa was screaming, but Avery and Tony just told her to shut up. Avery started asking Charles who else was in the house and how much money they had. Charles was adamant that they didn't have any money. He was telling the truth. He and Joey lived on a very small amount of money and mostly lived off the land, which was their purpose for moving there. Avery grabbed the rifle and went down the ladder to the main house. Inside, Joey was cleaning up after dinner and when he saw Avery standing inside, pointing a gun at him, he instinctively turned and ran. Avery fired multiple shots, hitting him in the head and the left arm. The dogs came running into the kitchen and Avery fired more shots at them. They were hit and ran off. Then, Avery walked up to Joey and shot him two more times in the head. Avery returned to the pink room where he and Tony helped Charles down to the ground floor. They made Teresa and Joey Wells come with them into the main house. When they got into the study, one of the dogs growled at them and Tony, now with the rifle, swung around and shot it multiple times. He then fired a few more shots into the body of the other dog, just to make sure. After sitting Charles down on a sofa, Avery asked him again where the money was. Charles maintained that they didn't have any money. Then Tony asked Charles where his soldering iron was. Charles was confused, but Tony demanded to know where his soldering iron was. He was likely looking for something to use as a torture device. Charles asked, quote, Why would I have a soldering iron? We don't have any electricity. A soldering iron usually needs to be plugged in in order to heat up. What Tony and Avery didn't know was that Charles did have money, just not in cash. Avery's misguided idea that Charles and Joey wouldn't trust the bank was completely inaccurate. Charles had about $40,000 from his pension and the sale of his home in Chicago, which was kept partially in a savings account with most in treasury bills that paid them about $200 a month to live on. Charles had had enough of these two delinquents' behavior and got up from the couch. Tony pushed him back down, but he stood up again. Then he began walking towards Joey's lifeless body. Tony pointed the gun at him and threatened to shoot, but Charles didn't stop. Tony squeezed the trigger and hit Charles in the back of the head. Charles stumbled and dropped to one knee. Tony pointed the rifle at his right temple and squeezed the trigger again. Charles spun around and fell into a bookcase. Avery and Tony began searching the house but weren't able to find any money. While they were desperately searching for anything of value, Tony noticed that Charles was still breathing. He pointed the rifle at his head and fired three more times. Then Tony took a silver bracelet off of him that had the word Charles engraved on it, a silver medallion from around his neck, and a diamond ring from his finger. Avery went around the house and put anything that looked valuable into pillowcases. Two of the items they took were a pair of handcuffs and a loaded 22 caliber revolver. Avery reached into Charles's pocket and retrieved the keys to his Jeep. After forcefully telling Joey Wells and Teresa to keep their mouths shut, Tony ordered them to get in his car. As they were headed down the dirt road, Tony was going in reverse, and in an effort to avoid a tree, he ran his car into a ditch. They used the Jeep to get the car out, and they headed away from Corpsewood Manor. Back at Tony's trailer, he and Avery were anxious to get out of the area, so Tony sold his car to Joey Wells for the $7 he had on him at the time with a promise to pay an additional $68 later. Back in the safety of Joey Wells' home, 
Teresa said she wanted to call the police, but Joey said he wouldn't get his uncle in trouble. While Joey's mother was giving Teresa a ride home, she told the whole story to her, but the woman agreed with her son not to go to the police. Knowing that Teresa wouldn't follow her instructions, she had Teresa pick up her two-year-old daughter and then brought them back to her house where they kept her locked up and away from the phone for four days. Joey Wells took her to a friend's house on December 16th, where she managed to get to a phone and call her uncle. In the meantime, Avery and Tony told their families they were going to Florida and made a run for Mexico. They pulled into a rest stop to sleep, and when they woke up, there was another car in the parking lot. Sleeping inside was U.S. Navy Lieutenant Kirby Phelps. Tony grabbed the revolver and knocked on the window. Kirby told him to take whatever he wanted, and Tony handcuffed him and marched him into the woods. When Tony unlocked one of the cuffs so he could lock the man to a tree, Kirby punched him. Tony shot him three times in the head, stole his wallet, and left him in the woods. Then Tony drove away in Kirby's car, and Avery drove the jeep to a secluded area and abandoned it. Kirby's body was found on December 15th by a couple of men who were using metal detectors to hunt for Civil War relics. Also on December 15th, a man named Raymond Williams stopped by Corpsewood Manor to bring Charles and Joey some bad news. A mutual friend had passed away and he wanted to let them know. When he got to the house and saw that the jeep was gone, he figured they were in town running their monthly errands and left. When he returned the following day and the jeep was still not there, he began feeling uneasy. When he approached the house, he saw the door open and bullet holes inside and he got out of there and called the police. The sheriff's department arrived and searched the house. They found the bodies of Dr. Charles Scudder, Joey Odom, and their two English Mastiffs. While the sheriff was searching the crime scene, Charles's jeep was located in Tallulah, Louisiana, and authorities there were contacting authorities in Georgia to report the discovery. Inside the jeep, some 22 caliber bullets were found and they were starting to connect the jeep to the murder of Lieutenant Kirby Phelps. When the sheriff in Georgia talked to the sheriff in Louisiana and told them about their crime scene, the puzzle pieces started to come together and they realized that one or more killers were on the run who were likely driving Kirby's car. The following day, Teresa was able to get away from the Wells family and she called the sheriff. He picked her up and then collected Joey Wells and took them both to the station where they told the entire story. Soon, the sheriff issued arrest warrants for both Tony West and Avery Brock. Meanwhile, Tony and Avery were not doing very well. They were in Texas, they were running out of money, and they couldn't agree on what to do next. They finally got sick of arguing with each other and decided to go their separate ways. Avery hitchhiked back to Georgia where he called his mother from a gas station and asked her to come pick him up. Investigators stopped by his mother's house right after he got off the phone and she told them where he was. They drove down to the gas station and picked him up. Avery made a full confession and told the investigators about the U.S. Navy identification he had taken off of Kirby's body. It was after that the investigators in Mississippi were able to contact the Navy and get a positive ID on their John Doe. After spending the next few days alone, Tony also drove back to Georgia, but he ran out of gas in Chattanooga, only about one and a half miles or 2.4 kilometers from the Georgia border. From the car, he walked in the pouring rain to a nearby bar where he saw a police officer in the parking lot. 
With no more will to run, he approached the officer and said, quote, Go ahead, take me in. The officer had no idea who he was, and when Tony explained what he had done, the officer called in the information, but there was no warrant for Tony in Tennessee. So the officer gave Tony a ride across the border, where it was confirmed that he did in fact have a warrant out for his arrest. The police were worried about the legality of having a Chattanooga police officer transporting Tony across state lines, so they had him drive Tony back over the border and had Tony walk into Georgia of his own free will, where he was taken into custody by the local police. Kenneth Avery Brock was going to be tried as an adult, and the prosecutor was going to ask for the death penalty. He was offered a life sentence in exchange for a guilty plea, and he took it. Tony pleaded not guilty, and his case went to trial. His defense would hinge on the rumors that Charles and Joey were devil worshippers. He claimed that he was protecting himself from demons. He claimed that the furniture inside the house would glow. Then it was discovered that inside the house, when it was searched, investigators found three vials that were labeled as LSD-25. One vial was full, one was half full, and one was empty. The defense added the idea that both Tony and Avery had been drugged when they committed the crime. They posited that the wine Charles had given to Tony and his friends had been drugged. The prosecution had the wine bottles tested, and no traces of LSD were found on any of them. The defense's attempts were destroyed when Avery testified about their plans, and when Joey Wells testified that Tony had told him two days before the murders that he and Avery were going to live in a devil worshipper's house. Samuel Tony West was found guilty on all counts and sentenced to die in the electric chair. His conviction was soon overturned because it turned out there was an issue with the indictment that the judge knew about but ignored. Tony's lawyer tried to get Tony off due to double jeopardy, but that didn't fly. Knowing that he would likely be convicted a second time, Tony agreed to plead guilty in exchange for a life sentence. Eventually, the chicken house was burnt down and then the house soon after. There are a few bricks left around, but there is very little left at Corpsewood Manor. Avery Brock and Tony West believed they could walk into somebody else's property and take everything they had for themselves. Their desire to have more without working for it was more important than human life. Killing as a means of getting something for nothing is a common act amongst monsters. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can also check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our new merch at Teespring. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. Step into the world of power, loyalty 
and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.